1: Hi, welcome back to the New Books and Anthropology Network, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobeck, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Leipzig, and today I'm thrilled to be talking to Paul Schenkman about his new book, Margaret Mead. Professor Schenkman, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Adam.
1: Uh, to start off, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and
0: your background? Okay. Well, I'm a retired professor of anthropology at University of Colorado in Boulder. And, uh, got my PhD at Harvard in 1973. Done a lot of field work in Samoa since 1966. And, uh, most of that field work has been about migration, remittances, economic anthropology deforestation, local leadership, things like that. And it was only in 1983, after Derek Freeman published his critique of anthropology, that I really got into the whole Margaret Mead, uh, Samoa episode. And uh, I've been doing that ever since 1983, So in uh, 2009, I came out with a book called The Trashing of Margaret Mead, which is a review of the controversy. And this biography of Margaret Mead is kind of a follow-up covering her entire career. Yeah. Did you know Margaret Mead personally? Uh, I actually met Margaret Mead when I was an undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara way back in the mid-1960s. She came to Santa Barbara to spend a week with the Department of Anthropology, and she needed a chauffeur. She needed a ride. And I had a 1953 Studebaker V8 uh, with a metallic paint job and white wall tires, and so I became her chariot. And... uh, as a result, I got to ask her all of the ridiculous questions that an undergraduate anthropology major could ask. And then um, I took her to the party in her honor at a private residence just before she left. And on our way to the party, she wanted to stop at a liquor store to get some libations for the people at the party. I was underage, so I didn't go into the liquor store, but I thought she was going to buy some wine. And she comes back, uh, sits down in the Studebaker, and she has two bottles of scotch. And she looks at me and she says, this bottle is for the party and this other bottle is for me. And I was really impressed. Margaret Mead could hold her liquor.
1: Oh, wow. That's an amazing story.
0: So. I also met her for lunch in 1969. I was about to do my dissertation field work in Samoa. So uh, we met at a greasy spoon across from the American Museum of Natural History, where she worked. And uh, we we spent uh, a nice lunch hour talking about the islands. Of course, she had not been back since 1926. And she was working in American Samoa while I was working in independent Samoa. So uh, we didn't have a lot to chat about, but it was very gracious of her to take that time to spend with me. My wife also worked with Margaret Mead at the American Museum of Natural History. So uh, we sometimes crossed paths there as well. So I didn't know Margaret Mead well, but I did have a sense of her.
1: Right, and this—I mean, this sort of um, leads into my my next question, which was: uh, Why did you decide to write a, a, a biography of Margaret Mead at this point? I mean, this is this is volume one of a series called Anthropology's Ancestors, right? Right, and. So there, there are other biographies of Margaret Mead. What, what is new about this biography of Margaret Mead?
0: Okay, well, there are a number of other great books about Margaret Mead, but typically they take a slice of her life. You know, like her relationship with Ruth Benedict. There are two excellent books uh, by Lois Banner and Hillary Lapsley about that chapter in Margaret Mead's life. Uh, Peter Mandler handles the World War II material very nicely. Um, Nancy Lutkehouse has a very good book on Margaret Mead, American icon. Uh, so there are lots of, of good uh, biographical pieces that if you put them all together, they give you a more complete picture of Margaret Mead's life. So what I tried to do was provide that more complete picture in about 50,000 words or less. Now, uh, what happened was, you know, I'd been writing about Margaret Mead uh, really since 1983 or so. I'd already published The Trashing of Margaret Mead about the controversy. And the editors at Bergkahn Books Called me up. I don't know how many other people they called before me, and asked me if I'd like to do a biography of Margaret Mead for uh, a more academic audience—college juniors and seniors, uh, first, second-year graduate students—in fifty thousand words or less, and. Margaret Mead is just so interesting. She's so fascinating. I said, yes. Um, Now, this was truly challenging because Jane Howard's biography of Margaret Mead, which is kind of the soup to nuts biography of Margaret Mead by a non-anthropologist, that's over 500 pages. So uh, I not only had to try and master Mead's entire career, but I had to do it in a relatively limited space. And that was a challenge, uh, but worth it. Definitely worth it.
1: And I can say that I, I think you're definitely, uh, you were successful in this endeavor. This is a fascinating read. There were so many things I didn't know about Margaret Mead that I felt like I was learning every, every couple of pages, something new and explosive about her life. Can you, so you capture all of her life in, in this relatively small book. Can you tell us a little bit more about her life in broad strokes?
0: Well, the, I think the thing about Margaret Mead is that she's just so complex. I mean, She's independent. She's unconventional in her personal and her professional life. She's paradoxical. Um, At one point in her life, she appears to be liberal. At another point in her life, she appears to be conservative. And she's controversial. She's controversial within anthropology as a popularizer and some of her other roles in anthropology. She's controversial outside anthropology. Uh, Liberals tend to love her. Conservatives tend to hate her. A woman, a feminist. um, They regard her as, you know, leading America's youth down the garden path of the sexual revolution, um, which is untrue. But nevertheless, um, Margaret Mead is this iconic figure. So... Um, It's difficult to capture her in a sentence or two. I mean, if you look at her various roles, I mean, she was a pioneering ethnographer. She was the person, along with Franz Boas and Ruth Benedict, who put the concept of culture front and center for anthropology. She became the spokesperson for anthropology, the most recognized, the most famous anthropologist of the 20th century. Not necessarily the best or the most important theorist, but the most familiar. I mean, at the time of her death, um, she was one of three American women who were the most recognized women in the United States. The other two were Eleanor Roosevelt. And Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Mead was the embodiment of the woman thinker, Um, and she was an influencer. Time magazine in 1970 said that she was one of the 100 most important influential people in the world. Imagine that an anthropologist important enough to make the influential list. And finally, she was a leader. Um, It wasn't just that. You know, she published books, gave talks, made radio and TV appearances, uh, was very much in demand. I mean, she actually led organizations both within anthropology and outside anthropology. Uh, She had the respect of people in many different disciplines. She was a great networker. I mean, she was all of these things. How do you capture that in? In a, a relatively short volume on her life, and so what?
1: What do you find? You kind of split her life up into three or four different parts. Is that fair? Yes. So what? What do you find is the um, is the connection between these different parts in her life? So if we if we start off in the the kind of the first part of her life, you lay out as as. Entering into anthropology under Franz Boas and then becoming sort of a field worker. Is that fair for
0: that first part? Exactly. Mead is a compulsive field worker. She's almost an obsessive field worker. She starts out in 1925 going to Samoa, um, American Samoa, and writing uh, Coming of Age in Samoa, which is published in 1928. It's her first popular book. It's her biggest bestseller. And it's very important for anthropology because it puts anthropology on the public's radar um, for a couple of different reasons. I mean, there's the reason that Mead thought was very important, which is that Samoan adolescence tells us something about American adolescence. Um, Meade saw American adolescence, as did most Americans, as a time of great difficulty, a time of storm and stress, uh, juvenile delinquency, in quotes. Um, not a really great period in the lives of, of either parents or young adults, but uh, In Samoa, adolescence is relatively stress-free. It's relatively easy, according to Mead. So Samoa provides a kind of alternative to American adolescence, and it may teach us how to treat adolescence in perhaps a different way. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect, of course, is, is that Samoa is seen as this sexual paradise. And that is something that piques a lot of people's interest. I mean, America in the 1920s, uh, outside of major cities where it was the roaring 20s, was still a very conservative country. And here is Margaret Mead talking about these Samoan adolescents having premarital sex, not getting in a great deal of trouble. Um, making adolescence something that it just wasn't in the United States. So that was uh, another aspect of coming of age in Samoa that really uh, got a lot of attention. So Meade finishes with Samoa, is there about eight and a half months, comes back, writes coming of age in Samoa, and is then off to Manus, just off the coast of New Guinea. Now, she had been married um, to her first husband, but she had met a potential second husband in real fortune on her way back by ship from American Samoa. And she finds out Uh, after she gets back from her field work in the islands, that uh, she may not be able to carry a pregnancy to term because she has a tipped uterus. And although she likes her first husband very much, um, she wants to do more field work. And because she can't have kids, she decides to Divorce her first husband and meet Rio Fortune for field work in Manas. So they do field work in Manas. Uh, they come back. She does three months of field work with Fortune among the Omaha, an American Indian group. Uh, they then go back to New Guinea and study the Arapesh, uh, Mandugamore, and Chambuli. Uh She then uh, meets Gregory Bateson who becomes her third husband. They do over two years of field work in Bali and uh, additional field work back in New Guinea among the Yatmo. And that's a mouthful but she studies eight different cultures between 1925 and 1935 1939. So she studies more cultures uh, than any other anthropologist in that period of time, publishes more professional and popular work on those cultures than any other anthropologist. So she's a committed ethnographer, a pioneering ethnographer, but then World War II comes along in 1939, and that changes everything because there's no more field work opportunities.
1: Right. And that gets us into the kind of the second part of her career, right? Is this national character studies. Right. So I, I, this for me was super fascinating. And I wanted to maybe zoom in a little bit on her life between 1939 and 1953. Uh, would you mind introducing this time period for us a little bit?
0: Okay. So prior to World War II... Um, Margaret Mead is this dedicated ethnographer, addicted to field work, studies all of these different cultures that are non-Western and less complex. Um, but World War II changes the whole landscape for anthropologists. I mean, the war isn't a secondary phenomenon. It is front and center. Anthropologists are needed to help win the war. And uh, both Margaret Mead and her third husband, Gregory Bateson, uh, realized this and they form an informal group uh, to promote morale in the United States and Great Britain. What Mead and Bateson think, and this is... Uh, true for other anthropologists as well, including Ruth Benedict, um, Rhoda Matreau, Jeffrey Gorer. They say that we need to study both allies and enemies. And the way to do this is by studying culture at a distance. If you can't do in-person field work, there's a good substitute. And that is looking at cultural artifacts like books, articles, films, um, talking to immigrants from those relevant cultures in depth, uh, conducting psychological tests on those immigrants to find out what makes them tick. And by understanding uh, different cultures using uh, the methodology of culture at a distance, you can get a better sense of how to communicate better among allies and how to better understand those cultures uh, where we uh, have uh, hostile relationships during the war. So this is a different kind of anthropology. It's a completely different kind of anthropology. It's applied anthropology. And most American anthropologists, become involved in the war effort. So Mead Mead is asking this kind of question. Could anthropology make a difference during the war? And her answer is definitely yes. And you do this by studying culture, not by studying economics or political science, but by studying cultural similarities and differences. And this is a real change because in policy circles, It's all about economics and political science. Mead is saying, give anthropology a chance. Um, So anthropology is moving into policy circles and national character studies evolves out of this. Uh, You have these portrayals of the national uh, characters of Germans, Japanese, Russians, Americans Margaret Mead does the America piece, and uh, a couple of other cultures as well. And these national character studies occupy Mead from 1939 until the mid-1950s. Do they make a difference? Well, in one case, in the, in the case of Japan, uh, one of the questions was, what do we do with the emperor of Japan? Do we depose the emperor or not after the war is over? And the anthropologists are saying, no, the emperor is too culturally important. Let the emperor stay in place. And lo and behold, uh, that's what they do. So anthropology is on the policy map. It's not just the interesting study of these distant exotic cultures anymore. It's the study of us. Right. And that that brings you in the
1: book to start talking a little bit about the morality of wartime anthropology, right? Right. So can you you talk a little bit about how you see the moral implications of this wartime anthropology that they're doing?
0: Well, um, this particular war, World War II, is not like the Vietnam War where um, there was also controversy over anthropologists' role and, of course, uh, the war in Afghanistan as well. I mean, this was for all of the marbles. Um, it was a world war. And everyone understood that you couldn't be neutral in this kind of situation. Um, and. For anthropologists, this posed something of a dilemma, because cultural relativism tells us that we have to try and understand other cultures from their own point of view. We can't impose our own ethnocentric views on them if we want to really learn about these other cultures. But cultural relativ- relativism only goes so far. It asks us to temporarily suspend our own values, our own prejudices, in order to understand other cultures. It doesn't require us to permanently suspend our own values. Uh, To do that would lead to moral paralysis. You know, whose point of view should we really take? So um, Cultural relativism uh, made anthropologists realize that there were limits um, and that in the case of war, this war, it was absolutely essential that they take sides, that they work to promote a better understanding of how to communicate to our allies and how to communicate with our enemies after the war so that there's a lasting peace. So they saw it as a win-win situation. You know, it would help America win the war. It would also establish a more enduring peace after the war. Right. Does that that help? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'd
1: like to back up for a minute because you mentioned four people – who are key to Margaret Mead's life at this point in time. And you write about it so nicely in the book, and I just want to give our listeners a chance to, to kind of catch up to this point. So maybe we can go through them one by one really quickly. We have uh, Gregory Bateson, we have Ruth Benedict, we have Rhoda Maitreau, and we have Jeffrey Gore. Could you kind of introduce the listeners to each of these four people?
0: Okay, so... Gregory Bateson, a great thinker, is Meade's third husband. He's British. He immediately goes back to Great Britain to help the British war effort. And he becomes deeply involved in the war effort in Britain. Uh, He's also working with American intelligence. He spends over a year in Southeast Asia uh, doing dangerous undercover work. Uh, top secret work, and uh, he's he's an important piece. Uh, Ruth Benedict, of course, is deeply involved in national character studies. Her study of Japan, which is published after World War II, *The Chrysanthemum and the Sword*, is anthropology's all-time bestseller, and it was widely read uh, after it was translated into Japanese. In Japan, uh, it was a bestseller in Japan, too. Um, so her her book uh, furthered the prestige of national character studies. Rhoda Matro was not yet an anthropologist, but uh, she became deeply involved in national character studies and after the war would be a critical uh, player in national uh, character studies, and she became Margaret Mead's lifelong partner uh, in the 1950s and beyond, as well as her intellectual collaborator, often uh, a silent partner in in Mead's writing. And finally, Jeffrey Gore, who was British, never got a Ph.D. in anthropology, but was regarded as this brilliant thinker and his role after uh, World War II especially led to the downfall of national character studies. So uh, we can talk a little bit about the swaddling hypothesis, if you like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So after World War II, national character studies are a big deal. And the government funds uh, a project at Columbia under the direction of Ruth Benedict, the Contemporary Cultures Project, which is a continuation of these national character studies. And it ultimately has 120 personnel involved. This is the largest project in terms of anthropologists um, that, Uh, We know of, or at least at that time, uh, Benedict dies in the late 1940s, and Margaret Mead inherits the leadership role of these uh, national character studies. So um, they're into the post-war period. They're still doing the study of culture at a distance. Um, But this project, whether it's Benedict running it or Mead running it, is run by women in a discipline which is still dominated by men. Furthermore, this is all about team research rather than individual ethnographers. These are teams of up to a dozen people, and they're organized non-hierarchically to produce individual portraits of different cultures. So there are lots of things about these national character studies under Benedict and Mead, which are really unusual, you know, female leadership, uh, teamwork and real teamwork, not in terms of I'm giving you orders, Um, but let's talk about this together. Let's see what kind of cooperative enterprise we can come up with. And one of the studies, Uh, is a study of great Russian national character that's led by Meade and Jeffrey Gorer, who Meade has a very high regard for. And Gorer comes up with what we call the swaddling hypothesis. Um, And he says, you know, if you look at how great Russians raise their infants, they swaddle them in infancy. They're bound very tightly. And this means that they don't learn independence. Um, They're very dependent on their parents. Their parents are communicating with them that they don't want their children to be independent. They want them to be independent. Um, They want them to be dependent. So um, there's this idea, which runs throughout national character studies, that these toilet training practices, swaddling practices, uh, the communication of, of parents to infants, uh, as as these kids are very very young, has this kind of continuity into adulthood, where adult personality is based on these very early experiences. So, what you see in in the work of of Gore and others is is this idea with political implications that uh, these babies who are swaddled grow up to be uh, adults who are more dependent on authority, who are more authoritarian, who are more susceptible to uh, tyrannical propaganda, whereas uh, the reverse of this, where children are not swaddled, they grow up to be independent, they grow up to be more democratic. Well, um, this is a very interesting idea, but it's full of holes. It's, you know, it's a big, big set of problems. What about the discontinuities between a youth and adulthood? what about the Stalinist period and new socialist man? Um, what about the differences among uh, populations which national character studies seem to think were more homogeneous, more uniform? And uh, critics jump on the swaddling hypothesis. They call it diaper, diaperology. Um, and You know, this is true in academia. It's true in the Soviet press. And Mead jumps to Gorer's defense. She says that, you know, this is too simplistic. Gorer says, I never meant what you think I meant. Um, But the swaddling hypothesis leads to a disaster for national character studies. they go into kind of a black hole and Mead herself gets a black eye for defending the swaddling hypothesis. So this is the end of national character studies um, in Mead's life in the mid 1950s. It's, It's a relatively unknown chapter in her life. It consumes her for over a decade. And we need to thank uh, Peter Mandler, who's a political scientist at Yale for really doing the homework on on this period in Mead's life.
1: Do you see this also as sort of the end of, of uh, culture and personality as a school?
0: Uh, culture and personality takes a hit, but um, culture and personality actually morphs into psychological anthropology. Mm. And moves in other directions, it uh, kind of leaves Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict behind, uh, but is a flourishing enterprise even today. And culture and personality, um, of which national character studies are a part, uh, was really huge in the 1930s, late 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. 1960s. I mean, if you look at the leadership of the American Anthropological Association, if you look at the 40-year period after the late 1930s, you find that a quarter of the presidents of the American Anthropological Association come from the Culture and Personality School. So there's an enormous amount of research done, an enormous amount of good research um thinking of Anthony F.C. Wallace, John and Beatrice Whiting, Mel Spiro, any number of other uh, really terrific person uh, persons uh, doing this kind of work. So it continued, but without the baggage that, that Mead and and Gore and some of the others had had given it. mm mm-hmm, mm mm-hmm.
1: So wh- one thing that we haven't yet touched on is the amount of tragedy that sort of hits Margaret Mead at this period of, in her life as well, right? Mm. Which you, you already mentioned uh, Ruth Benedict's death in 1949, but, uh, but we haven't yet touched on what pulled uh, Mead's marriage apart with uh, Gregory Bateson. Could you talk a little bit about the amount of tragedies hitting Mead all at the same time?
0: Well... In 1939, just shortly after World War II begins in Europe, Meade has her first and only child, Mary Catherine Bates. And uh, Gregory Bateson is already in Great Britain working on the war effort. America is not involved in the war yet, but um, America is obviously thinking about involvement in the war. And of course, that happens in late 1941. So Meade is overjoyed with having a child. You know, she wanted to become pregnant. She didn't think she could carry a pregnancy to term. And in her late 1930s, Kathy comes along. But uh, World War II gets priority and Meade is commuting between Washington, D.C. and New York City where Kathy is being raised in a communal household, uh, the household of of Lawrence K. Frank, uh, a very close colleague of hers. So the first years of Kathy's childhood um, are, are years when her parents aren't there. And her parents, of course, are not seeing enough of each other either because Bateson is in... Great Britain or Southeast Asia. Meade is in New York or Washington, D.C. And after the war, they try and get back together, but uh, it's just not working. Bateson moves out, first to another part of New York City, then to Harvard, later to California, and he initiates the divorce. Mead is despondent because uh, she did not really want a divorce. And uh, she was not the initiator of the divorce, as she was in her first two marriages. So Bateson and Meade continue to have a good working relationship. They're still close colleagues, but the dissolution of her marriage is a big problem. The death of Ruth Benedict, who is her, her closest intellectual companion, and of course, uh her intimate companion in the nineteen twenties and early nineteen thirties. Um, this is a, another devastating loss as well. But Mead steps up to the plate. She's more than willing to take over the leadership of the Contemporary Cultures Project at Columbia, and she moves on. Um, she is resilient.
1: And then when when the uh, National Character Studies project also sort of falls apart. She picks herself up and moves on after that as well, right?
0: Exactly. Um, Mead has already thought about more field work. Um, you know, this is the mid 50s. She's in her mid 50s, but she wants to return to Manos, uh, the site of her field work in the late 1920s with Rio Fortune. And she wants to go back to Manus to see what's happened as a result of World War II in the Pacific. I mean, in that part of the Pacific, there had been major battles. And she thought, all right, the Manus are completely devastated. This is not going to be a pretty picture. But she goes back and uh, she finds that in Manus, things have changed for the better. Uh, Instead of being devastated by World War II, the people of Manus have adopted a much more contemporary outlook. They've moved from uh, houses in the lagoon onto the shore. They're well organized. They have uh, councils. They have uh, what seems to be a more or less democratic form of local government. Um, They're very interested in being part of the modern world. And this is a pleasant surprise for me. Now, the picture is actually a little more clouded as recent scholarship um, by one of her colleagues makes clear. But uh, this is a good news story out of, out of, uh, post-World War II Pacific. And Mead writes about it in New Lives for Old, which comes out, I believe, in the mid-1950s. I think it's 1956. And it's another book that's a bestseller. And it's not only a bestseller, it's a good news story that is used by the United United Nations to promote development, um, to say yes, you know, uh the war the war was tragic. lots of people were killed and dislocated, but there is recovery there is resilience
1: and then the so so we've now sort of transferred into the fourth period of her life, the fourth and kind of final period of her life, as you lay it out in the book, where she's now turning to become more of a uh a public figure, right? That's how you put
0: it. Right. Omid well, had been a public figure ever since Coming of Age in Samoa came out.
1: Um,
0: she wrote for the public. She spoke to the public. Um, you know, there were more bestsellers, including Sex and Temperament and Three Primitive Societies, growing up in New Guinea. But in the post-World uh, War II period, she becomes uh, even more of a public figure, even more of a, a public icon, even more of a role model for uh, younger women. So, even as she's doing these national character studies in the post war period, she writes a book called Male and Female Study of the Sexes and she returns to her interest in, in gender, although this is not a term that she uses. And in her earlier work, she had written about how flexible sex roles could be, particularly in these three New Guinea societies, where in one society, uh, what we consider feminine sex roles were held by both women and men, Uh, In another society, masculine roles were held by both women and men. And in a third society, um, they were completely reversed. Um, So there was this idea of the fluidity of gender roles, or she called them sex roles. But in male and female, she said, wait a minute, you know, even though there's lots of cultural variability in these roles, there are still basic differences between men and women that we have to acknowledge. Menstruation, pregnancy, birth, the mother-child bond, these are universals that we still need to pay attention to. Critics wondered which Margaret Mead are we supposed to believe? The Margaret Mead of sex and temperament and fluidity, or the Margaret Mead of male and female, or more fixed gender uh, roles and identities? Uh, Mead would say, look, in the 1920s and 1930s, I emphasized cultural variability because people thought that biology was destiny, that race was really the key to understanding the universe. But after World War II, um, with uh, the racial boogeyman in the background, we could return to a consideration of the role of biology, which was not primarily determined but which could not be neglected or ignored altogether. So Mead said that, yes, we need both. We need culture. We also need to recognize that biology plays a role as well.
1: Right. And you point out in the book as well, in her discussions on gender, she's not quite as, uh, as, uh, shall we say, as free as some people often portray her.
0: Now, the earlier Margaret Mead of the, of the late 20s and 30s uh, definitely more liberal. If you read her Red Book columns, which was her primary public forum in the 1960s and 70s, um, in the early 1960s, she is against premarital sex. She is all for women as mothers and homemakers. She says that college is not as important for women as it is for men, and that uh, the sexual revolution and the change in gender roles as women go to work is really threatening to a lot of women rather than liberating for a lot of women. So uh, she was quite conservative at that point. She gradually evolved to a more liberal position. But again, Mead is a very complex thinker. Um, You don't want to read too much of the fine print in her writing because it's confusing. Which Margaret Mead are we talking about?
1: There's sort of the 1920s Margaret Mead, the 1930s Margaret Mead, the 1940s Margaret Mead. (laughs) seems like every decade we're dealing with a, a kind of a new person.
0: Yes, she, she keeps evolving. She keeps changing. Um, the one thing that doesn't change is that she continues to be a popularizer. I mean, she is all about reaching a more general audience. So she writes for the public. She is speaking 100 times or more a year. She's appearing on radio and television. And this, of course... Uh, Leads her colleagues in anthropology to see her as primarily a, a popularizer and to neglect her actual professional work. So, along with each of the popularizations, Mead uh, is writing professional ethnography as well. Um, but these just don't get as much attention.
1: Right. Right. And this sort of um, leads us then to her uh, very kind of sudden illness and death in
0: 1978. Well, um, she's incredibly active, well into her mid-70s. Uh, if you look at that year, 1978 in January, Um She's beginning to teach three courses at age seventy-six. Three courses at age seventy-six. I mean, everybody has long retired by then, but not Margaret Mead. She's already done a dozen speaking engagements. She has travel plans. Um, she's the head of a uh, a school for underprivileged kids in East Harlem. Uh, she's networking broadly, as she often does, both within the United States and internationally. And uh, she's diagnosed with cancer, particularly nasty kind of of cancer. So um, she cuts back a little bit, but she's actually denying that she has cancer to most everybody except the people that she's closest to. And she continues to work almost uh, until her death, uh, late that late that year in 1978. So, uh, again, Margaret Mead is this nonstop, uh, almost compulsive workaholic. Um, this is who she is. She's an anthropologist, um, and death knocking at her doorstep is, is simply not going to stop.
1: There is so much that you manage to cover in this book. It's only 160 some pages and reading it. There's, there's so much you talk about. You talk about her, her relationship to Franz Boas and Ruth Benedict. You talk about all of her, her, her three marriages You talk about her relationship to other anthropologists like Edward Sapir. You talk about the love triangle between her and Rio Fortune and Gregory Bateson when they're all doing fieldwork in the 30s. You talk about her relationship with Rhoda Metro. You talk about the the Mead Commission at the AAAs. There's so much you managed to cover in this little book, and there's so uh, much that we're not getting to talk about in our conversation unfortunately but maybe before concluding our conversation you could speak a little bit about Margaret Mead's legacies.
0: Oh yes. Um it is legacies plural rather than legacy singular and there's so many different aspects of Margaret Mead's life as as we've already mentioned in in this all too brief conversation but We can begin with uh, the fact that she was a pioneering ethnographer, that she wanted to study other cultures, both for uh, the sake of, of recording cultures, which were rapidly changing, if not vanishing, and for the sake of understanding ourselves better. In other words, there were lessons to be learned by us from studying other cultures. It wasn't an enterprise um, that was dedicated to just understanding these other cultures in terms of themselves. Uh, Another role that we've already mentioned is uh, her role as spokesperson for anthropology. She literally put anthropology on the map. Uh, People did not know what anthropology was. There were only a few dozen anthropologists in the 1920s. Uh, Popularizing anthropology was not considered important or professional, but Margaret Mead said that we need to make our voices heard. Anthropology has a message. And that message at that time revolved around the concept of culture. So putting culture on the map was, again, a major contribution. Um, she was uh, very helpful in being a role model for women. Um, now, women often misunderstood who Margaret Mead actually was. Uh, it wasn't known widely that she was bisexual until long after her death. It wasn't known that um, she actually frowned on a number of uh, activities during the sexual revolution. Uh, But young women thought that Margaret Mead was a role model. She had her own career. She had her own ideas. Um, and she wasn't afraid to talk about them. Uh, Again, uh, Margaret Mead spoke not only to uh, the public, she not only spoke to women, uh, she spoke to the world. Time Magazine called her mother to the world, and again, she was an influencer. People paid attention to what Margaret Mead would say. They wanted to know what she would say, and this is why Red Book, Uh, offered her a monthly column for over 15 years. And finally, um, she was a leader. Uh, She wasn't just an icon. Um, She was even considered for a cabinet position by President Lyndon Johnson, Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare. She was offered that position. She declined it. Um, you know, she was a leader of a number of organizations, including, um, uh, president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the major scientific organization in the United States. So in all these ways, she was really, really important. Um,
1: and as confident. you, you taught us earlier, she was also able to hold her liquor very well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> me, me, me wasn't a perfect human being. She was controversial. There are legitimate critiques of her work. Don't want to minimize those. But uh, in writing this biography, I'm just so amazed. I mean, she lived several lives in her own life. Um, incredible person.
1: I I just want to thank you again for writing this biography because uh, as as a PhD candidate, I often uh, kind of get set in my own thinking that I, I know Margaret Mead or I know these these big names in anthropology. And it was so nice to open this up. And uh, like I said earlier, almost every page finds something explosively new for me regarding Mead's life. This is a, a really, really wonderful book. And it's I, I'm so happy that you wrote this. So, so thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Adam. Our our concluding question, as always, on the New Book Network is to ask uh, what you're working on now. So would you mind sharing with us what you're working on at the moment? Uh,
0: I have two small projects. Um, There is uh, a recent book, a biography of Derek Freeman, who was Margaret Mead's most prominent critic. Um, He began the Mead Freeman controversy in 1983 by taking mead to task for coming of age in Samoa. Um, so I'm uh, looking into Peter Hempenstahl's argument about Derek Freeman. he says that Derek Freeman was a harsh critic of Margaret Mead that perhaps he was a little bit unprofessional but uh, Freeman's critics in anthropology, including me, um, were equally unprofessional. Therefore, uh, we should really think that Freeman was an okay guy. And I have the correspondence uh, from Freeman and his four critics, who he called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, uh, myself. James Coate, Martin Orans, and um, one other important person. And it turns it turns out that uh, if you if you read this correspondence, uh, Freeman really was over the top. I mean, he accused his critics of every kind of unprofessional activity possible, as well as having personal flaws. This was the same was true for Margaret Mead. I mean, it wasn't a professional critique. It was also deeply personal. Freeman thought she was an immoral woman. So, you know, my point in this very minor piece of research is to just show uh, who was professional and who was unprofessional in the Mead-Freeman controversy. So that's that's one of the things I'm working on. Mm but I don't have another Margaret Mead book uh, (laughs) in the future. Uh, There there is somebody who will be producing a a terrific multi-volume biography of Margaret Mead, but um, it's not going to be me.
1: Well, I'm sure I speak for many, many people when I say that I look forward very much to see what you have to say on all sorts of topics in the future. So Professor Paul Shankman, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you again, Adam.